Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, welcome to Dose of Leadership. So happy, as always, you're tuning into the show. Another great conversation today. Today, we have Henry DeCio on the show. He's worked in the White House. He's been a keynote speaker, campaign strategist, and leadership advisor. He's served as an executive of both startups and with large, complex organizations. In 2008, he was the chief operating officer of Barack Obama's presidential campaign and then served as Obama's deputy assistant for two and a half years in the White House. It was during this time that he became intimately equated with this, what he calls a new emerging pattern of societal change. He has since then followed this campaign-driven passion for hope and change to make change-making a global phenomenon. He's engaged with some of the world's leading social and business entrepreneurs, and he has brought this powerful framework of new leadership and team of teams organizations described in his brand new book called Changemaker Playbook, The New Physics of Leadership in a World of Explosive Change. It's a great book. It's a great uh, concept because it feeds into what I've seen and what I talk about and what I'm passionate about here of creating these decentralized cultures of leadership. You know, it still amazes me that the society and the culture kind of pushes this hierarchical change or this hierarchical style of leadership, thinking that is what is needed and what's effective. And it's not. It's amazing that we put so much emphasis on these larger-than-life characters when the real change that happens in the organization is pretty horizontal. It's pretty flat. And we need leaders to kind of be the ones that are accountable for all of that. Uh, it's less about here's this larger-than-life figure at the top executing orders and creative thinking and thought. And in reality, it's the creative thought and the thinking and all the action comes from the front lines. And so it's the job of the leader to create this environment of empowered execution. It's not the job of the leader to come up with the creative solutions. They certainly can, and they can certainly provide the vision, but it's more about communicating that vision, communicating the impossibles, telling everybody that it is possible not knowing how it's going to get done, but just communicating, knowing that it's going to get done and unleashing the power of the organization, of the group, of the team. So we talk a lot about on this show, and I appreciate Henry's view, uh, and certainly this view of in his book. It coincides with everything that I believe and talk about here in Dose of Leadership, and you're really going to enjoy Henry and his thought. It's a really engaging conversation, really diving deep into the power of decentralization and how to succeed in chaotic situations. Because I can't think of anything more chaotic than running a presidential campaign. So it was fun to kind of get some inside baseball from Henry and see how he applied it in his everyday life. This show is brought to you by my sponsor, Equity Bank. It's been so fun and a privilege to have them as a sponsor on Dose of Leadership for well over two years, well over 50 episodes. They are a team that knows what it takes to start and grow a business, and it's been exciting to watch them grow into one of the fastest growing banks in the Midwest. They've been listed on the NASDAQ exchange for a while. They have locations all across Kansas, as well as Oklahoma, Missouri, and Arkansas, with plans to expand even further. Clearly, this team at Equity Bank knows how to lead for growth. So if you feel like your current bank is more of a follower than a leader, and you want to work with a bank that really understands your needs, 
go check out my friends at Equity Bank. Go to equitybank.com to learn more. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I really do appreciate your support. If you haven't done so, follow me on your favorite podcast application. You can go to doseofleadership.com. I just revamped the website. Easier to navigate, a little simpler. You can listen to the show there, or you can subscribe, like I said, and follow me on your favorite podcast application, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher. And if you haven't done so, leave a rating and review. It does so much to keep the algorithm or keep me front and center uh, with the algorithm there at Apple Podcasts. And thank you because of you and your support. We continue to be a top 25 business management podcast. Thank you for your support. Check out doseofleadership.com. Like I said, check out the university page, doseofleadership.com slash university. If you're looking to become part of a mastermind group where we support, push each other into the growth zone, out of our comfort zone, hold each other accountable, and solve all of our real-life leadership challenges and problems, check out doseofleadership.com university and see if it might be a fit for you. Thanks again for tuning in. Let's get on with this conversation with Henry DeCio here on Dose of Leadership. Henry, so excited to have you on Dose of Leadership. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm excited about uh, this book. I came across it and um, dove into it, and it really resonated with me because of this concept of everyone becoming a change maker. That's something I've really morphed into over the last decade. So how did this how did this come about? What, what prompted you to write the book? So I had an experience in the Obama 2008 campaign, and, uh, and it was essentially watching our organization start up from scratch uh, to morph into this, you know, growing up typically siloed and hierarchical, you know, you're, he's announced six weeks later, we've got, you know, people spilling out into headquarters for the first time. So we come into this environment where we don't know each other. There's the crush of demand on us. We've got computers coming out of, of boxes. We're still getting our servers up. We got checks coming in the mail. We're still getting our bank accounts open. We don't know each other's name. And, uh, and so when you come into this environment, you're building the airplane in mid-flight. You put a team on the fuselage, you know, a team on the wheels, the engine, so forth. You, you basically build your organization silo by silo. And that's what we had to do to get it up. And then as sort of the pace of change got faster and faster in the hothouse of a campaign environment, we found we had to open up and, every, and let everyone else uh, in the organization lead. So we moved from a one leader at a time, typical siloed hierarchical organization to everyone leading in every moment. And what I discovered was that these were polar opposite worlds. The physics of leadership in the world of one leader at a time and in everyone leading in every moment are polar opposite. And, uh, and so as I came out of the White House bubble and I learned, and I can go into that a little bit if you want, but as I came out of the White House bubble, uh, uh, Obama campaign, White House bubble into the world, I realized that the world had morphed from that one leader at a time, you know, get a skill, repeat that skill faster and faster world to everyone leading in every moment. And it was such a fascinating uh, discovery for me. I just wanted to go as far into understanding it as I could. And that's what brought me to uh, the Changemaker Playbook. I like that. I, and I love that, that perspective of how you got there. I'm kind of with, and you even mentioned this early in your book that you would have considered yourself, even when you were in that moment and setting it up in the campaign, that you know, you know, I'm I'm a guy that I'm not a micromanager. I delegate. I want to empower people, but yet we say that, but we still kind of find us in this because it's so ingrained. It's so. I think that comes from the Industrial Revolution, you know, that Frederick Winslow Taylor kind of mindset, right, of separating management from the people. So even though you and, and I can tell, you know, you want to empower people, you're not 
you don't want to be the guy at the top. But even then, as you say in your book, you still found yourself in that one, you still had it in kind of the mind that, well, there needs to be one leader that's kind of running everything. But it does, right. it's still, it, it, it kind of slows everything down, doesn't it? Right? I mean, it does. So, right. I, I had, you know, I had um, in my silo, right? I had uh, issues escalated for my review. And I thought during that time, my name was, my name might have been Henry Kenai, because Henry Kenai opened an office. <laughs> Henry Kenai hired staff. Right. Henry, can I spend this money? You know, uh, and at the end of the day, what happened was I needed a view out and across the organization, but the demands of my silo were pulling me downward, and uh, and I couldn't. So yeah, all of the and all of the managers were were in that sort of same place. Uh, so we did ultimately have to tear down those walls. But it, you're so right. I mean, it's the it's the it's the mindset that we have from when we're in school, it's from our history books. It's, it's what my dad told me. You either be a leader or a follower, you know, yeah. one or the other. So be the leader. Yeah. I'm with you. And, and what, what I, I was mentioning this to a little bit before the recording, you know, when I got out of the, I came from the Marine Corps. So I was bathed in this culture of leadership and it, and it ties in with what you're talking about, this culture of decentralization where the leadership burden is spread throughout the entire organization. In other words, everyone's encouraged to think and act like a leader. And the reason why they do that, or what I came from, is because you're dealing with chaotic situations. And the only way you can thrive in a chaotic situations is if you push the, de- the decision-making authority to the lowest levels possible. Now, it, I, I use this term and it scares a lot of people about it. It's, it's kind of creating a culture of asking for forgiveness instead of permission. So, And that scares people because it instantaneously thinks everything's out of control. Mm-hmm. What do you say to that? Like, so, so we're getting more flat. We're getting more horizontal. Where everybody's becoming change makers. How do you herd the cats? How do you rein it in, though? I mean, how would you how would you say that? You know, somebody still has to be accountable for the whole mm-hmm. shooting match, right? I mean, somebody still yeah. has to hold the account. And I think that's that's the key. I think is well, I'm just willing as the leader to be accountable for all of this, but I'm mm-hmm. trusting you to make empowered decisions, right? And what do you think when you hear me say that? I love the. I think it's totally right on. I think it is a scary thing though as a manager. I mean, moving from one leader at a time to everyone leading in every moment wasn't our plan. And it certainly wasn't something, you know, I was looking forward to as a manager. <laughs> right, exactly. It, you know, campaigns are sort of a, you know, we, we're we're pretty risk averse. So we're, we're, we like that sort of command and control model. But what we found was is that to keep, keep up with all the with all the challenges and and you know the stuff coming at us that we had to open it up and here was the key here was the key takeaway for me when we opened up the organization you would have thought that we would wrestle those change forces that were coming at us to the ground in fact change got faster and more explosive and why is that it's because you know when everyone leads everyone makes change and if everything you change changes everything and everyone is doing it then you're in an explosive, omnidirectional system. Change is everywhere, mm-hmm. bouncing off itself. It's no longer linear and faster. That's right. It's and, and so I think I think at the end of the day, your your point about uh, people have to then have all the information to act. It has to be much more open and transparent. Your leadership uh, uh, people have to have uh, different different tools to be able to work across the organization. And in that way, when people are uh, leaders, they're also stakeholders. And when they're stakeholders, to your point, 
They're stewards. And so you're, that environment of trust starts to kick in. And I thought I found it, uh, you know, I found it to be very effective. Yeah, you said something very critical there. People felt like they were. They, they're, they're not just wheels in the cog. They're stakeholders. Right. And, and when you use that, that makes people feel like they own it. And it becomes part of theirs. And they become accountable. Mm. And, and I think what we're, what we're getting at here is how you deal with that rapid change. And I, and I can sit, I've never been on a campaign, but my God, I can just think that's, there's probably not particularly in this day and age with social media and the way the politics are. I mean, there's not an equivalent. I can't think of much where, where the chaos is so ever changing it, you know, it's so rapid and so, you know what I mean? I, I, I can't articulate, but it's very chaotic. It's like the, it's almost the ultimate in chaos. You know, I, I think it's more chaotic than, than a, it's probably, it's probably like combat. Well, I think you're hitting on a good point, but I say though, that when I came out and I discovered this world uh, after my years in, in the campaign in the white house, what I realized was that we are now, what we have now is rising individual agency. We have the tools at our fingertips now that were once available to, to a few. So I can, you know, I can be a, a you know, a broadcast into the world. I have my own network uh, and you have, you have the democratization of leadership. So now as we all move into this, everyone, a leader world, everyone leading in every moment, we're all making change. It's explosive and omnidirectional and it's everything that you're saying. It's now we're living in this world of, uh, of rapid explosive change. And it just requires a whole different playbook. You know, I think that's, as, as you're saying that and reading what you say in there, I think that's probably where we see so much, maybe at the root cause of so much of the div divisiveness or the divisiveness mm. of um, it feels so chaotic. Because maybe I think, maybe it's it's that friction between, you know, those those two worlds colliding, maybe? I don't know. I never thought of it in that way. I don't, but I mean, we could talk for hours about why we're so divisive as, as a country, but maybe that's part of it. You know what I mean? Because to what you're saying that, you know, 40 years ago, if I wanted to get my point across, I wanted to talk to you about how I view leadership. I mean, what were my options, you know? <laughs> you know, it's funny. I was, I was watching an old... Uh, I like old Johnny Carson from like, I think it was like a 1979 episode last night. And yeah. he, at the beginning, before he brought the guests out, he always does a little segment or whatever. And they had, they had done a joke contest to the nation. They sent out six weeks ago, they put a little ad. It's like, you want to send in a joke for Johnny to read on the air or something that effect. Oh. And he goes, <laughs> and he goes, it was amazing. And it, it took six weeks. He goes, it was amazing. Six weeks. He goes, he goes, we got 600 responses. Like they were like, you know, and this is a guy that was garner, garnering, you know, what was he getting a night? 20 million, 30 million people watching the show right. every night. Right. And he got 600 responses. I mean, yeah. I can get 600. I mean, me, I can in get yeah. 6,000 <laughs> responses, yeah. you know, in 24 hours if I wanted to. It, yeah. it, so we take that for granted how. To your point, and I think that's that all this technology, all this ability to have all these voices leads to this friction, leads to this kind of chaotic environment, and a leadership style that demands like like you're talking about, right? More decentralization. Yeah, and I think you know, for me, I think where the confusion is in the world right now is that uh, we don't really see the new game. We don't see this change from the like you said. You go from you go from 
the family farm of the 1700s. You've got Ben Franklin, get a skill, take that skill inside four walls for life. You've got the assembly line. You've got the madmen of the 1950s help us, helping <laughs> right. us learn to repeat repetition faster and faster, squeezing that last bit of efficiency and repetition. And suddenly we go into this world of every, everyone leading and the playbook for, for that narrow get a skill and take that skill inside four walls for life that sort of version of the world is so gone. And now we have to have this new playbook, but you can't, you can't take that new playbook if you don't see the new game. And so it's like, I say, like, you know, the football player, he gets ready, he puts right. on his pads, he charges out into the field, you know, to join the other players, he gets out there and then he finds that, that there's the two nets are gone. Uh, the two goalposts <laughs> are gone and said there's nets and they don't have the same heavy gear that he has. They have light clothing and flowing hair. And, uh, you know, they chase after a football that spins across the ground. Now, he's got three options. One is he can stay frozen. He doesn't know what to do. The second is he can double down on what he knows, which is just tackling those guys to the ground, <laughs> right. which would make them dangerous and push to the side. Or he can see and get into this new game. And the challenge for us is we're living in this new world, but we still see and think we're in the old game. Yeah, yeah it's so true. So what are the steps? I mean, how do we, how do we get there? How do we get people to, to, to see the new game, do you think? Well, that's what the, much of what the book is about is trying to sit, help people say, okay, if you see the world differently and you see yourself in the world differently, then you have the information you need to act. What I, what I discovered in the campaign was that the universe of people we were interacting with, there was a new DNA out there that, that wasn't because of something we aspired to. It was what we tapped that already existed. And I define that, that sort of DNA uh, as innovative mind, service heart, entrepreneurial spirit, and collaborative outlook. We all have that. That's what we feel that, you know, people across the board, left, right, blue, you know, red, doesn't matter. And then the question is, if we have that, how would you build your organization to accommodate change makers, change making, that whole universe of, that's, that's now emerged? And if you're, if you're a CEO and you see customers coming in your door, if you see change makers coming in your door and not customers, how would you build it differently? If you're a teacher and you see uh, change makers coming in your door and not students, how would you build it differently? If, you, if the children in your house, you see change makers and not, uh, and not your kids, how would you structure your, you know, their learning and everything about how you interact differently? And that's the thing. I think we just haven't seen this new game and we don't see change makers. We still see sort of the cog in the wheel that you were talking about. Now we have to, now we have to see it differently and then build to that differently. And our organization was built to accommodate change makers. Yeah, it, it was the technology, it was how we interact, it was everything. Right. And you hit on a great point there that I think that, that, that speaks to the challenge is like, how do you get the individual to see themselves as chain makers, to see themselves as leaders. That's, I, I, that's been a big part of the show and a big part. And I, and I see that where I, I, my heart goes out to organizations that are trying to do this and realize that, yeah, it does start at the top, but I'm real concerned about the middle and below because that's where the real culture mm -hmm. shift I think happens, right? And getting the people, the individual to understand that, yeah, I am a change maker, that I'm a leader. And what you just listed there, I tried to write those down, but you're right. That is inherent in all of us, right? Being the, in, what'd you say? The innovative mind. Um, service heart. Service heart. And what was the other? Entrepreneurial spirit. Entrepreneurial spirit. Entrepreneurial spirit and collaborative outlook. Right. And you look at- The heart at, of who we are. It's, 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 <laughs> that's part of our DNA. And I think 
some people are wired. They don't believe that. They don't think we're the entrepreneur. I think by nature and design as a human species, we're entrepreneurial. We don't realize that we are. I think we've mm -hmm. been, like I said, I, I go back to that Frederick Winslow Taylor mindset, which I'm not, a, I mean, it was part of the Industrial Revolution. Some good things came out of it, the bad what bad side of it is what we're still dealing with today. That mindset is like, oh, well, he's the boss and they're the leader and I'll wait for them to tell me what to do. And it's just getting people to understand that, no, you have all of that inside of you. I like that, right? Innovative mind, the service yeah. heart, the entrepreneurial I, spirit and the collaborative. Yeah. Yeah. And I come at that also, you know, maybe even um, with it from another angle as well, though, which is, um, but weren't we sort of, weren't we sort of taught that's what we should, you know, we, were. we shouldn't get too big for our brushes. We and, were. You know, and so all those things, all those things, we're really sort of given that old playbook of like, what's your job going to be? What's that expertise <laughs> going to be? I mean, you know, kids that are seven, eight years old, when, even as they, even as we know that 65% of job types for kindergartners are not going to exist uh, for young people. So part of what I see is we have a challenge in that our systems built for repetition in our mindsets, in our outlooks, again, that football player, they're not built for this new game. And even I would argue that a lot of the culture uh, in uh, organizations is actually built for the old game. And I so right. maybe we've just gotten a little automatic at checking our change maker at the door uh, because, uh, because that's sort of what we're told to do, um, whether that's in the classroom or at work. I think you're right. I never really thought about that, that we are taught that. Mm. And I think- we're taught that because, yeah, I mean, we're taught the color and the law. Yeah, because and it feeds into that kind of industrial revolution mindset, right? And so, but I like to, and this kind of leads into what really attracted me about this part of the book is how you say empathy is the is fundamental to the, all of this, right? It's fundamental to this operating system that we're trying to see. And I do think even getting people to understand how to tap into that empathy side. What does that even mean? You know, and mm. that emotional quotient or that emotional intelligence side of all of this is, is what we're trying to exercise here. And to me, what butts up against that is, is just kind of the ego driven. We're still, I don't know why we're still attracted to that. You know what I mean? I, there's so many great organizations that have come across here where empathy has been the key driver to their mindset. Right. And this is what we're talking about. And I'm sure you've seen plenty of examples. I've seen it, but it still frustrates me that we, in politics and in so many aspects of business, we 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 go towards this kind of larger-than-life megalomaniac figure who isn't very empathetic, right? And I, I don't know why we're attracted to that. I, th that boggles me. Well, I still think it's a struggle between the you know whole, what we've been taught and uh, a little bit of what uh, where we are. I. I I love the point you're making about empathy. Um, again, I found in the physics as we went from one liter at a time to everyone leading in every moment, said the physics were polar opposite. And the, and what I would also say is that the, the are now the hard skills. And so empathy is now a hard skill for this new game. But if you think about it, in the old game, one person big, everyone else small in any moment. In the new game, everyone has to step into their bigness. In the old game, you form teams on, you know, functionally, right? In the new game, you pull people across those old silos based on their possibilities uh, and their talents, not necessarily by their job description or their department. Um, in the old game, it was about um, uh, information on a need-to-know basis. In the new game, because everyone has to play fully, you have to get transparency as the premium. In the old game, it's about 
you know, Henry Kenna, permission. And the <laughs> right. new game is about trust, empathy-based ethics, you know, empathy-based leadership, all those things are at work. You have to know, I have to know that you, Richard, are putting your talents, your change-making abilities, all that power you have to work for the good, because otherwise I'm not going to trust you. And so, so empathy is hugely important. The old leader of, you know, the old leadership of 2020 vision, you know, I'll point the way and everybody follow. That's, that is, that, there's no place for that in this world of 360 vision. You have to know where your change is affecting the person, uh, you know, three, three rungs uh, uh, over. And so I think uh, what I found in the campaign is as the rules couldn't keep up, I was terrified. Like I figured I had to make more rules, but the reality was what we had to do was create the conditions that everyone understood our parameters and could move together toward the goal. Hey, we're about halfway through the conversation, but I wanted to take the time to talk about my good friends, the sponsor here of the special series at Equity Bank. Have you ever noticed that most business bankers seem to really understand just one thing? It's banking, right? And not a lot about business. It makes sense since most banks were built generations ago and now they're often run by caretakers, not business builders. Well, it's not the case here at Equity Bank. The bankers at Equity Bank didn't inherit a bank generations ago. They built one of their own. They know that building something takes expertise, vision, and hard work. And over the past decade, they built one of the region's fastest-growing banks by working side-by-side with customers, with entrepreneurs, with leaders in communities all throughout Kansas, Missouri, Arkansas, and Oklahoma. Recently, Equity Bank was listed on the NASDAQ exchange, which gives them even greater capabilities to take on those big deals that growing businesses need to keep on growing. So if you're tired of talking to bankers who've never really ran or owned or built a business, then I think you're going to be pleasantly surprised when you talk to my friends at Equity Bank. Thanks for listening to this show. Let's get back to the conversation, this unique and special series on leadership and entrepreneurship brought to you by my friends at Equity Bank. That is such a salient point. I mean, that is so critical what you said right there, you know, and in, in, in the heat of the battle, you're saying to yourself, okay, I'm losing control here, essentially feeling like it. And I yes. got it. I'm thinking if I insert more rules, this is going to rein it in. But actually that makes it actually, it makes it worse actually, because now you've, you've put constraints where it's easier to make mistakes now because you've put more, so many damn rules in there. Mm-hmm. What great insight that you realize, hold on, that's not what I got to do here, right? I've got to do the opposite. I got to let go even more. And what you needed to do and what it sounds like you did is like you became more focused instead of creating rules to rein it in, you became more focused on, I got to maniacally communicate what we're trying to accomplish here and why we're doing it. And that became your primary job was communicating that. I love your point. I love that point. Yeah. Can I tell you something? There was a point where just to, just to kind of bring that home during the first 20, during, during the first 16 months, we grew from zero to 2000 people. Wow. First 16 months. And we also grew from zero to $40 million a month revenue in the last 16 weeks. We grew from 2000 to 6,000 people. Holy crap. And we grew from 40 million a month to hundred million a month. So to you to make your point, I was terrified of all these change makers coming into our change. I thought I was going to be the one who was going to lose this. Uh, this the old organization was going to collapse. It was going to be my right. fault. And uh, but it really did come down to 
that that um, uh, you know that premium on communication, mm -hmm. getting it as wide and across the organization as possible, and then relying on not just the people coming in, but the people who are already here to sort of keep the keep this thing even keel until the very end. Remember, we were thought of as an innovative camp campaign. We were also thought of as a very disciplined organization, despite what I'm saying right now. Well, but that's but yeah. But you see, I think that's the that's the secret sauce that I think that the curtain that needs to be peeled back to understand. I don't, you know, this. I think where people miss the boat is they do things to they think they want to eliminate fear and uncertainty. They want to make things as linear as possible, and that's just the wrong way to look at it. I would rather spend my limited time, energy, and resources on being the composed force in a chaotic situation. That is way much more advantageous and the only way to thrive in what we're talking about here. And so if you can be, and so, yeah, I can guarantee you, your stomach was in knots, your throat was tight. You're feeling all this because you're a human being. <laughs> but if you spent, if you, if you did everything you could to be composed in that and kind of just building the trust. Yeah. It looks disciplined. It looks like a well-oiled machine. You know, it's the ones that are running around with their heads cut off. And again, not that saying you didn't lose it. I'm sure you probably did a couple of times and you probably felt, you know, it, that's just normal. Mm. But I think it, it's about focusing on being composed in those chaotic situations. That's what I, that's the secret sauce. I think that's what I've been trying to get people to understand for the last decade. And then, Yeah. And I don't know. Does that resonate when I'm saying that being totally does? And I think again, but my confidence comes now, now uh, from the idea that I think I understand. I know the force of change in the yes. world right now. It is it is that change maker effect, rising individual agency, the tools at our fingertips that allow us to act on that change, all of us, and the democratization of leadership. I feel like I understand the world better, and that gives me a lot of peace now. You know, that means I'm going to raise my kids differently. What, what are they going to need to be in this world? They're going to need empathy, like you said. Mm -hmm. What I learned from these change makers that I wrote about, empathy, uh, the ability to work in teams collaboratively. Mm -hmm. So again, empathy, but also teamwork, not functional teamwork. Um, then, uh, you know, the ability to, to step into their leadership. So that means that they've got to learn leadership. And, and the idea that, uh, that everyone on the team has to be a contributor not just one person kind of telling everyone else what to do yep. and then putting those tools to work for the good of all. So how can you give kids experiences that give them confidence, that help them understand that kind of interaction uh, that give them the ability to play in this new game. And it's not, not necessarily going to come just uh, in our, you know, in that sort of every, that, that assembly line to everyone a vocation, <laughs> which again is not, is not built for today's world. So, so that means it demands more from me as a parent, but I'm much more confident as a parent seeing the new game. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I think when I started looking at, and I don't know when it exactly happened, I guess it was because it was when I got thrust in the corporate arena, like I was telling you about before the recording, when I got laid off and I started working in different experiences, different corporations and seeing like it, once I got comfortable with the fact that this is how the world operates chaotically, that that's the norm, then I just, I, I was comfortable with it. That's I, right. And, and I do go into situations more confident. And again, it doesn't mean I don't feel anxiety. I think that's important. In fact, I use, I use, I like to harness the anxiety 
and and what you're talking about here is getting out of this kind of drama loop where you're kind of a victim searching for a rescuer or you're being a persecutor because you're scared of losing control and getting into this kind of creative mindset, this empathetic, calm, composed, where you're asking questions like, what am I trying? What are we even trying to accomplish here? What are we doing? What is the outcome that we want? I think that's the key, right? It's like, what are we trying to achieve? And once you know that, that gives you fuel to take steps to get towards that. Whereas opposed to the other way, you're just reacting to the next crisis the next in and so when you know what the outcome is then you can pick and choose which things you want to focus yeah. on right and i'd imagine running a campaign i would imagine the successful ones have to get that because otherwise you could just get derailed by the dumbest stuff you know the the dumbest stuff could totally derail and you see it all the time in politics you see people just get totally derailed because they lost their focus on what they're trying to mm -hmm. achieve and it seems like Obama, I'm thinking back to that historical campaign in 2016 is like, I mean, one thing you had that great advantage of, um, I mean, the bottom, that was a great advantage that Obama had some charismatic qualities that certainly um, reinforced that, right? Mm -hmm. So you had that on your side, but still, uh, when the chaos starts hitting the fan on everything, you know, you somehow you, you guys got to know how to, which battles to choose. Right. And I don't know. Mm. I mean, I don't, I'm interested though, how much of that was Obama directed, how much of it was, you know, you, how did you stay on message? I guess during, during, well, to me, that's the biggest challenge of a campaign, isn't it? Staying on message yeah. and not getting derailed by the people that are trying to derail you. Right. Yeah, right. That's what you're, you're always trying to knock each other off your feet. But <laughs> right. I, I do think, uh, look, I, I love talking about the campaign as a sort of the laboratory for understanding the lessons of winning. <laughs> <laughs> but but um, but I also like it, you know, from an organizational point of view, if you if you really look at it in those, you know, when I told you in those early days where we didn't know each other's names and we, you know, we come into this blank space, there's not even signage on the wall yet. He gave us three pieces of guidance that I do think sort of fueled this sort of everyone a change maker culture inside the organization. The, the three pieces were uh, number one, uh, build it from the bottom up, um, respect everyone. Now remember, build it from the bottom up, right? That's sort of the precursor of everyone leading in every moment, right? So uh, give people the tools at where they are. The, uh, respect everyone, empathy comes into that. And then, um, and then this idea of the famous one, no drama which this is a collective thing uh, so that, you know, so that, that he set the culture there. And then we started actually, once you, you know, you have that culture, I really found that we started hiring to that, not to expertise necessarily, although we had very talented people, but we hired that innovative mind, service, heart, entrepreneurial spirit, collaborative outlook that sort of carried us that, that those three pieces of guidance he gave us carried us through those days of, early days of hope and chaos, the days of change on steroids, the final days of this, you know, change, scaling change, and then all the way through the White House. That's a great point. I mean, and that's proof positive. Like you said, if, you, if, if you've set that kind of just simple foundational premises that kind of define or plant the seeds of the culture, to your point, now you're hiring for character. You know, it's like the experience is a given. Like I, that, my given is I need someone that's good at this, but I'm going to be looking for these character because I can't teach that. That has to, mm -hmm. they, they have to come to the table with those. 
that's huge, right? That's the difference yep. between looking at someone's resume and looking at what they've accomplished as opposed to who are you really, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. What else about this? I'm looking, I'm going to look, let me look through your, um, your, uh, there's so many great aspects of your book here. I'm going to look at your table of contents, but what, based on that, so one thing that you said that really interested me is like, how do we get our kids? How do we give them those experiences? As you ask that question, I'm thinking, what do we do? Do you have any ideas on that? Like, what can we do as a, as a father, as, as a, a, a young leader, what can we do to get our, our young people, these experiences that we're talking about here? Well, look, I'm really, uh, I'm hoping changeful about this rising generation. Now, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, well, the young, you know, young people coming up, they're the change makers. You other people need to get <laughs> kind of get out of the way. <laughs> the truth is the generation wired for change is falling behind. And, uh, and I am very, very positive about this generation coming up, but I will say we did give them the old playbook. And uh, so now I look to, you know, so now I look at sort of what do, what do we need to get from our young people that can help us get into this new game? I think as soon as they see this change, this fundamental shift from repetition to, to change making, they're going to lead us into it. And then as a father, what I'm thinking about my own kids, and when I studied the world's leading change makers, here's what I found. Those years between zero and seven are the years when you model as an adult empathy. And that's when they, that's when they develop that empathy muscle. And then those years between seven and 12, uh, that's when they start to break off on their own. They get their mm -hmm. own personalities. They mm -hmm. start to learn around their own passions. Um, and even if it's soccer, you know, I could, I could introduce public speaking to, to my kids after a soccer practice. Tell me how your game was. Put them yeah. on Apple TV afterwards. Right. Uh, and, and then you have the teen years where you learn to get an idea and put a team around your idea. And then you work to collaboratively uh, toward, um, toward executing on that idea. And the last element that I found in the world's leading change makers was uh, leaving to learn uh, throughout life, but certainly in those early years, leaving your zip code, maybe later leaving your state or even your country, if you can, getting those experiences where you are, um, where you're kind of thrown into it on your own and learning how to live in a very outside of your comfort zone. If we can build those experiences into, bake that in, not even just into school, but certainly in school. But if we can bake that into the growing up of our kids, it will go a long way. And I will tell you, coming out of this, you know, out of this pandemic, I see a young generation uh, from, from, Gen, from Gen Z all the way down uh, to a young age, I see a generation that is coming up, and millennials, I will even say, that is coming up um, and is this is the resilient generation. These are the people who've been through it. They've learned how to work at home. They've gone back to school. They've been online. If we would, if we would see the possibilities for this generation as a result of this pandemic, rather than mourning what they've lost, and I understand <laughs> yeah. what they've lost, yeah. but there is something really powerful about to happen with this new generation. I love that optimism that you're one of the first guys that have, that have kind of put it in that perspective. I'm with you. I think, I, I think intuitively I felt that, I mean, I've, 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 like all of us have gone back and forth. I'm like, what does this mean? What has this done? And certainly yeah. have grieved what we've lost. And, and there's a huge part of us that's like, ah, oh, it's never going to be the same. Let's go, go back. Look, I mean, change is constant, right? But you're right. That's a great way to look at it because instead of focusing on what we lost, let's focus. I mean, you know, and I, to your point, I'm like, oh, you know, our, 
I was thinking about young kids, like these, the ones that are six, that when you really start remembering things, kindergarten or, you know, late preschool, like, are, and they've been inundated with these images and all we know and the stats and all this and deaths and everything. Are they going to be afraid or, but like you said, or let's look at the positive. Maybe they're going to be more resilient. It, it all depends on what we do and guide them through this and the next steps. Right. And let's that, help them with that. I let's love help that. them. Let's help them with, Hey, look, man, you went through this. You guys are resilient. You're tough. You can do anything. I mean, that's really what we're talking. That's kind of our obligation as, as leaders, as guiding them through that. Look, life sometimes is messy, but look what you did. We made it through. Yeah, they got through a pandemic. They got through a pandemic, <laughs> it's, it's you know? Amazing. And look at how they did it. I mean, you know, again, this was hard. This was hard stuff. But one of the things that I've learned about Changemakers is, they learn in an incubator and then they take that out into the world. And I think our young kids, look, my kids, they lost on, in one day, they lost all their access to all their friends and they lost sports and all their mm -hmm. activities. Get that really, really hard. But I would also just say that I've watched my kids mature. I've watched them come through this with develop new skills. I see perseverance. I see, um, you know, I see resilience. And I think that, uh, look, there's always going to be a mix of things and anything. We got to pull that resilience out and bring that into the world and think about the workforce of the future yeah. with a generation that has just come through this ready, just 10 years away in some cases, some are just a couple years away, ready to bring those experiences into the workplace. I think we're going to thrive. I love that, Henry. I love that optimism. I really do. I mean, I th I'm with you 100%. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, that's the way we got to look at it, too. Somehow we got to get, and you talk about it near the end of the book, too, about, about dignity, right? I mean, gosh dang, if there's anything that I think people are hungry for, I know that I am. Somehow we got to get back to this this stop stopping worrying about being right or wrong and seeking to understand. I, that is my, that is the thing that drives me crazy is, and I'm trying to get better at it myself. I think I'm, I do, I do good. I catch myself trying to, to be right or wrong, but I'm more interested about seeking to understand again, exercising that emotional quotient side of us, which is what your book really is all about to me. The emotional intelligence side becoming a more in emotionally intelligent leader is what we're talking about here to me. That's, these are kind of my interpretation of what I've digested from your book and my conversation with you. But how do we get dignity back? You know what I mean? Like just, just respect, just the, I look back at my parents who they had a group of friends. They got married in 1961. They had a circle of friends that were all married 1958 to 1961. Mm. Six couples, 12 people. And they played bridge because that's what they did back then, right? Everybody played bridge. I don't even know how to play bridge, but they played bridge. And they would once a month be at one of the six one of the six houses, you know. And we kind of grew up with all and saw it all. But they were Protestant. They were Catholic. They were Jewish. They were Kennedy Democrats. They they were Nixon Republicans, and they gave each other hell. They laughed, they cried, but they did life together. And they didn't, they didn't have this division, even though they were, they came from various political and religious backgrounds, they had mm -hmm. dignity and love for each other. And I'm like, I don't even have 12 friends that I go play cards with, you know, let alone, you know, the, so that's a whole different conversation, but you know what I mean? It's just that, that dignity piece is just so lacking. Yeah, I like that, and that that is a big theme in the book is the the vet, you know the shift from st from from valuing status to val valuing dignity, 
And it really is just a, a mindset shift, a framework change that I saw with the people that I was working with. And I think if we can really, you know, when I was coming out of the White House, I remember talking about empathy and I, I could have been an alien. I'm from another planet. Now <laughs> empathy is the word we use. Yeah. But now can we get to radical empathy where it's like, I really understand what, you know, I really want to understand what you're saying. And I want, you know, really, can I meet, can, it's not just about one way empathy. Can you meet my empathy with with empathy, right? <laughs> right? And I think that's a bit, you know, it's like playing a guitar. How many different combinations, you know, of, of chords and notes do you have? You can spend your whole life and never getting it. And I think it's the same thing with empathy. Like, let's just, you know, let's go on that journey, see how far down we can go in a commitment to 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 our to, to our neighbor. And and uh, and then I think we'll have an outbreak of of uh, dignity happening all across the world. And I and I think it's so doable. This I, I is do one thing we can do. <laughs> I agree. And it starts with ourselves, right? I mean, I can't. I think it's important to understand that I can't get you to shift. I can't get other people to shift. I mean, I can only shift myself, really. And hopefully, by shifting myself and bathing that light, and hopefully that light gets a little bigger around me when I do it. And then hopefully people will bathe in that light and see it too, right? I can't get you to shift. I think that's, it's frustrating. I wish I could, mm. but I can't. And so the best I can do is set the example and then come come to you with my differences with with compassion and, and, and empathy and understanding, right? Yeah. And I, and I also would say that, you know, this whole, one of the concepts of the change maker was the ability, when when walls fell between when walls fall between two or more sides that wouldn't otherwise connect, that's when the magic happens. That's when innovation happens. Yes. That's when uh, progress happens. But I often find that the first walls are in my head because <laughs> I got that old <laughs> playbook, so right? That's so right. it's just sort of like uh, you know. So I, oftentimes I agree with you, uh, and uh, and I also just have to spend a lot of time on myself because there's there's just so many things that I, I don't, you know that I'm trying to work through. To make sure I can get in this new game as a as a full contributing uh, player uh, along with my neighbor, I agree with you. And your book is great, Henry. You did a really really good job. Thank and, and thank you. Uh, it's it's called Changemaker Playbook: The New Physics of Leadership in a World of Explosive Change. You hit on so many great points. Again, it resonates with me because I'm coming from like I told in the pre-recording this this world of the Marine Corps, which. Most people didn't realize it, but it was a lot like what you talked about in here. And it was a very loving organization when it was firing in all the, all the right cylinders and it was doing it right. And um, and I think you're really on to something. I, I'm, I just I really enjoyed the book. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you really really wanted to make sure that you, we got across? Did we, did we, did we get every, hit everything you wanted to? Yeah, I mean, I think one of my favorite the way I think about change making when people ask to define it, I never have a good definition. But I love the words of Bill Drayton, who uh, he's sort of thought of as the godfather of social entrepreneurship. He says, love and respect in action. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> mic drop. Yeah, right. Mic drop, for sure. That's a great way to put it. Yeah, I'm with you. I don't know, man. I feel jazz talking with you, man. I feel upbeat and optimistic. You, you brought some great energy to this conversation. I really appreciate what you're doing in the world. I think, I think it's good. I really encourage everyone to get this book. And uh, what, so how can people connect with you? Obviously get in the book, we can get it anywhere books are sold, but how can people connect with you and, and, and maybe learn more about you? Yeah, sure. I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn and also, you know, uh, changemakerplaybook.com. 
uh, you can learn more about the book there too. Obviously, the links will be there in the show notes. Please uh, check him out, guys. He's one of the good ones. I really appreciate you coming on, Henry. What a fun conversation. I hope we stay in touch. I love it. Thank you so much. I hope so too. Thank Thanks. You. Hey, thanks so much for tuning into the show. I hope you got some value out of this episode. If you did, please do me a huge favor. Tell somebody about this show. Tell your spouse. Tell your kids. Tell your coworkers. Let them know about the value that Dose Leadership brings to your world. Go to dosaleadership.com. You can learn more about my services. If you're looking for somebody to speak, teach, or coach about leadership, I'm your guy. I'm known for my ability to transform individuals and organizations, teaching them the concept of creating a culture of decentralized leadership. I do think that is the secret sauce to facing all the challenges that we face today. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. I look forward to the next time we're together. And until the meantime, make it a great one.